Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we lost the remote control of the TV set, and I ordered a second one, and sure enough, as soon as it showed up, we found the first one. <laughs> but it's actually been a, a good thing because we've developed a, uh, a bit of a competition between the two of us. This is what we do on the weekend. <laughs> so we, uh, many years ago, discovered that we're both pretty dexterous with our feet. Is yeah. that the right? I mean, is that I can throw English? a golf ball with my feet. Sure. Um, so we started a contest to see who could uh, bring up Netflix and choose a show faster. faster. Right. And, and whoever gets a program on first wins. Yeah, I win. And then we watch that show. I won. That's how we decide what we're going to watch. So, you know, you guys, I won. Yeah. Um, it's true, but you didn't really choose a show. You just wanted to win. You just hit the first thing you could find. And so we ended up having to watch, what the hell is that show? Love is Blind. Oh, God. No, it's a show that I've wanted to watch. So you weren't planning on watching this, but... Uh, no, uh, I, I most certainly was. Um, I chose that show intentionally. <laughs> well, I, I'll give you this. You've been committed to it. You watched six hours of it last night. Yeah. Um, six hours of it. I mean, I won, so... <laughs> fair is fair? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Okay. So Cat has faster feet. That's what we've learned. I can't tell you all the times that I've said, I can't wait to watch that new reality show, Love is Blind. And you just weren't listening. Mm, sure. You just hit the first show you could find because you had to win, regardless of what the show was. I don't, I don't. <sighs> Enough of this tomfoolery. Tell me a story. Oh, do I go first? You do. Excellent. Okay, so... You know, one of my favorite things to do is ask the lady of the house, Alexa, <laughs> to tell me something that happened on this day in history. Sure. Well, August 21st, I asked Alexa, 
what happened on this day in history. And oh boy, was I in for a treat. She started telling me about this thing and I was like, what are you talking about, ma'am? So I looked it up and here we go. Friday, August 21st, 1835. A small teaser notice appeared on the second page of the Sun Journal and it was reportedly copied from the Edinburgh Current. The announcement read, We have just learnt from an eminent publisher in this city, Edinburgh, that Sir John Herschel at the Cape of Good Hope has made some astronomical discoveries of the most wonderful description by means of an immense telescope of an entirely new principle. Hmm. All right. They put in a newspaper notice saying, hey, we found something neat. We're going to tell you about it coming up, right? After this important message from one of our sponsors. (laughs) So August 25th rolls around. August 25th, 1835. The first in a series of six articles. The text occupied three quarters of the front page of The Sun. The paper's editor wrote a short note on the second page explaining to his readers what he was presenting them with. We this morning commenced the publication of a series of extracts from the new supplement to the Edinburgh Journal of Science, which have been very politely furnished to us by a medical gentleman immediately from Scotland in consequence of a paragraph which appeared on Friday from the last Edinburgh Current. I love the way they wrote back then. Right? I really have to figure out what the heck he's talking about. (laughs) Takes me a minute. The portion which we publish today is introductory to celestial discoveries of higher and more universal interest than any in any science yet known to the human race. The article stated that Herschel had created an immense new telescope so powerful it could be used to view astronomical objects with great clarity at previously unheard of magnifications. It was huge, measured 24 feet in diameter, and its true power lay in the fact that it had a second lens, which they called a hydro-oxygen microscope, Hmm. that magnified and illuminated the objects being viewed and then projected the telescopic images onto a canvas screen. So the problem with... And this was the 1830s. That's correct, yes. Oh my God, okay. So the problem with many distant objects is the losing of the light and becoming dimmer when magnified. So by adding the illumination to the telescopic image, the new hydro-oxygen microscope supposedly allowed for unreal magnification. The author of the narrative was said to be Dr. Andrew Grant, the traveling companion and assistant of Sir John Herschel. As Grant described it, Herschel had found evidence of life on the moon. Okay, awesome. The second day of articles described the moment when, January 10th, 1835, Herschel had first trained his telescope upon the moon. It was described as beautifully distinct and even vivid representation of rock. Shifting his view a little bit, he then perceived that the rock was profusely covered with a dark red flower. Okay, he's really getting into the details here. Oh, yeah. He's selling this. After moving the telescope just a smidge, Mm. Herschel saw herds of brown quadrupeds similar to bison. Really? He described it as being bluish lead color and... 
also spotting a strange amphibious creature of a spherical form, which rolled with great velocity across the pebbly beach. <laughs> wow. So one of two things. Um, he either discovered or invented a telescope that actually did amazing things, mm -hmm. or he um, ate some mushrooms. Tripping on yeah. shrooms, yeah. He was tripping on the yeah, shroomage. Yeah. All right, day three of these articles. The third extract began with a description of more geological formations and plants. However, the highlight of this particular article was the discovery of the first sign of intelligent, though primitive, lunar life, a biped beaver. <laughs> the ex these extraordinary beavers walked on two feet and cradled their young in their arms wow. a lunar beaver they lived <laughs> it's how you get the power of the moon sure that's sure it's actually yeah. something that they do you know is that right you go into the woods uh -huh. a full moon uh -huh. bend way over yeah. <laughs> expose that beehole um <clears throat> What was I saying? Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the biped beaver lived in huts constructed better than and higher than those, quote, of many tribes of human savages. They were intelligent beavers. Oh, yeah. Okay. There were even signs of smoke above the huts that the beavers built, indicating that they had mastered the use of fire. <laughs> really? Yeah. Day four. The scientists discovered human-like creatures living Inside a ring of red hills that they dubbed the Ruby Coliseum. Unlike earthbound humans, though, these creatures were covered, except on the face, with short and glossy copper-colored hair and had wings composed of thin membrane, like a bat. The faces of these creatures, Dr. Grant remarked, was a slight improvement upon that of a large orangutan. Definitely shrooms. Further observation of these creatures, whom Herschel dubbed the Vespertilio Homo, or man-bat. Further observations revealed that they were rational, but the very proper Dr. Grant also noted that some of their amusements would but ill comport with our terrestrial notion <laughs> of decorum. Apparently, the men-bats were humping out in the open where they could be spotted by way of telescope. <laughs> I'm sorry, oxygen, yeah. whatever telescope. Yeah. What does this uh, obviously fabricated story... <gasps> How dare you? Uh, How dare you? ...tell you about Herschel? Well, <laughs> we're getting there. Okay. Okay. In the fifth entry, Dr. Grant noted the discovery of an apparent abandoned temple built of polished sapphire. The roof was constructed out of yellow metal and fashioned to look like that of a mass of flames rising upward and licking at a large sphere of clouded copper. Not the beavers. That's right. Okay. Different. That's good. <laughs> Did the makers of this globe buy this record any past calamity or predict any future on our own? But they decided that they would not indulge in speculative theories, <laughs> however seductive to the imagination. That is seductive. Right? To the imagination. The lunar narrative concluded on Monday, August 31st. In the final article, there was a superior order of Vesperatillo Homo living in close proximity to the mysterious Sapphire Temple. And these new creatures were 
quote, of a larger stature than the former specimens, and in every respect, an improved variety of the race Mm. of bat people. While observing these creatures who spent their time collecting fruit, flying, bathing, and conversing, the astronomers took note that they had a universal state of amity among all classes of lunar creatures. They had built this kind of utopia uh, on well, on the moon. Sure, you can hump out in the open. Right, right. Isn't that that's, utopia for us that's all? That's what we're all striving toward. They noted that the bat people were herbivores and did state that they couldn't remember having observed any carnivorous or ferocious species, though earlier in the articles they had mentioned birds catching fish. I guess those birds would be pescatarians. Lunar pescatarian. Yes, of course. The next day, though, the scientists reportedly returned to the telescope and were shocked to find that they had accidentally left the telescope's lens in a position where it had caught the sun's rays and it burned down a wall of the observatory. So they tried to fix it and recreate their results, uh, but were unable to, Uh, unfortunately. So the moon and moon people were no longer visible. Was this some sort of an elaborate 19th century insurance scam? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the... Here's how the lab burned down. We were looking at bat people and they were humping. Yeah. Out in the yard. Yeah. Um, over on the other side of the yard, there were beaver people roaming about. Yeah. We suspect the beaver people. Uh, they We know they had fires inside their huts. Sure. So they probably just burnt down the... Yeah. Um, Grant then declined to say any more, explaining to his readers that they would find a more detailed account of the bat people in the upcoming publication of Dr. Herschel's Authenticated Natural History of the Planet. So this was like a viral marketing campaign for the guy's book. The book never came to be. Oh, it never did. So, no. Anticipating that some people would find it difficult to buy into this story, Dr. Grant assured skeptics that a forthcoming volume would provide certificates from several Episcopal and other ministers who were, in the month of March, permitted under stipulation of temporary secrecy to visit the observatory and become eyewitnesses of the wonders that they would then be asked to attest to. I see. <clears throat> we didn't hear from those people. Oh. Uh, ever. So this just went away. Uh, well, it was reported that readership increased during these days of newspaper releases sure. regarding the, the lunar revelations. Okay. Though a fire had swept through parts of downtown New York City, destroying the printing press at the New York Herald. And that was one of the biggest competitors of the sun and there had been riots going on in baltimore so a lot of people were anxious to get news about those so it's very possible that the sun readership uh, only increased if it did because their competitor had seen a fire which i think is really interesting hmm. mm-hmm. suspicious much <laughs> so your theory is that maybe they burned the competitors <laughs> machinery down um, and then knowing that probably they're going to have new readership because of all this uh, that they concocted this story 
so that more people would stay with them. Or they were just all on shrooms. There could have been a lot of shrooms. Maybe there was some ergot released into the air yeah, maybe. at some point. Uh, by the end of August, most of the other New York papers began reprinting the lunar narrative <laughs> in response to their readers' intense interest about it. So word of the discovery quickly spread Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston. Uh, within a month, it had crossed the Atlantic to Europe. It was a buzz. Let's tell you, it was buzzy. But it's a great example of just like an echo chamber. (laughs) They're just reporting stuff that was reported before. That's right. Yes. With no factual basis. Mm -hmm. Hey, these guys wrote about it, so it must be real. A full month after the hoax had first seen the light of day, the New York Herald reported that the ingenious hoax is still making the rounds. So the Herald apparently fixed their fiery printing press (laughs) and then was like, Guys, this is ridiculous. Uh, Right. We can all agree this was a hoax, right? So with Herschel being such a widely known expert in astronomy, any discoveries attributed to him would carry an air of truth. Uh, But the fact was that he had no idea that his name was being used in this con at all. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, man. He was initially amused by the hoax because he, he said that none of his own observations could ever be that exciting. However, he later became annoyed when he had to answer questions from people who believed that the hoax was real. And they would approach him asking for answers. And he's like, dude, I don't know. I didn't make this hoax up. Hmm. Like, I, there are no bad people. What are you talking about? The articles were most likely written by Richard Adams Locke, a Sun reporter educated at Cambridge University. Grant, the author noted in the publications, was not a real person. Hmm. Who was not impressed by this hoax? Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Poe being the voice of reason is... (laughs) Kind of problematic. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So he claimed that the story, uh, beyond being redonk, was plagiarism of his earlier work called The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall, detailing a man who went to the moon in a hot air balloon. Poe's story was supposed to be a hoax. It was supposed to be released in multiple installments in newspapers as satire because people would buy into any bullshit that they read in the paper. So he wanted to release this story as like a ha ha ha, you guys are idiots. And this story, his editor was Richard Adams Locke, that Sun reporter. Okay. All right. In 1844, Edgar Allan Poe published a story reporting that balloonist Monk Mason had crossed the Atlantic in three days using a gas balloon. The story was a sensation, but was deflated two days later when it was revealed that his story was itself a hoax and that he had written it and released it solely to burn the sun and the editor of the balloon story, Richard Adams Locke. This is nine years later. (laughs) <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe's like, long con. Oh, I'm going to get you. That's a long, I'm going to get you. Long con. Yeah. Anyway, so that is the Great Moon Hoax. Wow. Most of this information came from the Saturday Evening Post, History.com, and Hoaxes.org. That scamp. Poe is such a little scamp. Oh, super scamp. Yeah. Unreal. I love it. <laughs> But, I mean, he wasn't responsible for the Great Moon hoax. 
he was just a little bitter that he wasn't responsible for the great moon hoax. (laughs) And now, that thing in the middle. Here are some weird fast food items from around the world. This according to BuzzFeed. Number five, Burger King made Mac and Cheetos. It was fried macaroni and cheese coated in Cheetos dust. I want some of that, please. I don't know. Number four. McDonald's Japan introduced the Gracoro Burger in 2012. The patty consisted of breadcrumb crust that was stuffed with macaroni, shrimp, and white sauce. So it's not really a burger. No. Okay, it's just on a bun. Number three. KFC's Double Down Dog. It was introduced originally in the Philippines in 2015. The Double Down Dog was a hot dog, but instead of a bun, it was uh, a bun-shaped piece of fried chicken. It also had bacon and cheese on it. Number two, KFC Indonesia decided to introduce in 2013 the cheese donut. Their standard donut topped with shredded Swiss and sprinkled on cheddar. That's, That's just wrong. And number one in Japan, at Burger King, the premium berry burger. Yeah, it's a Whopper with fresh berries and cranberry sauce. It's a seasonal item. Season of horror and searing abdominal cramps. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. 
So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. When all the other podcasts get together at a dinner party, we're the podcast that sits with our legs crossed by the fireplace and listens politely. This is The Box of Oddities. Well, if you listened to last episode, you almost heard me get electrocuted by a lightning storm. Um, Davey wrote, I was thinking about the lightning incident, and I think I figured out what happened. Oh, okay. Just to recap, we were recording, and as lightning struck nearby, a big ball of electricity appeared right in front of me. And I, I got a shock. It obviously didn't hurt me badly or destroy any of the equipment, but I felt it, and it lit the room up. It was weird. Davey says, it may be unlikely, but I think experts would agree it was Robert the doll. <laughs> Definitely Robert. You should send an apology letter immediately. What's really funny about that is, what did I say right after it happened? I said, damn it, it was Robert the doll. I thought we were going to have like an actual science moment here, but no. No. Robert the doll. Typing my apology as we speak. <laughs> I was looking at some old photos from one of our last trips to Ecuador. What was the name of that museum that we went to that was so bizarre and awesome? Um, the Extreme Art Museum? Extreme, Extreme Art Museum. The Cultural Extremo, something like that. Yeah. And it got me wondering if there were more museums like that in closer proximity to us. Sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And so today I'm going to talk about really bizarre exhibits at museums around the world. Ooh, fun. We are museum geeks. And whenever we go to a museum, we gravitate toward the stranger, more unusual For sure. exhibits. At an Italian museum, there's a very strange exhibit. It, uh, it involves a guy named Antonio Scarpa, and he lived between 1752 and 1832. He was uh, an anatomist, uh, a professor. He was recognized for his observations on structures of the ear and the nose. He was also credited as the first person to accurately depict the heart's nerves and show cardiac innervation. And he described the cellular structure of bone along with notes on bone growth and disease. He was quite well thought of as far as his um, abilities as an anatomist go. He was also very wealthy, kind of a dick. He was really arrogant okay. and uh, was infamous for spreading rumors about his rivals. Oh, nice. He's one of those guys, yeah. right? People fucking hated this guy. He was so disliked that marble statues that were erected in his memory were defaced. Oh, yeah. And after his death in 1832, his assistant performed an autopsy, removing his head, his thumb, his index finger, his urinary tract. Oh, that just sounds perverse. Yeah. Like once you get to urinary tract, it's like, oh, okay, he wasn't doing research, was he? Most of that stuff's missing except for Scarpa's head. It is now on display. That was an anger autopsy. And uh, man, I got a picture of it and ooh. Oh, yeah? He looks creepy as hell. Take take a look at this. Ooh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, you definitely would go there, though. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In 1633, Galileo Galilei 
He, uh, of course, lived between 1564 and 1642. He was convicted of heresy for his support of heliocentrism. That's the observation that the Earth and the planets revolve around the sun. Uh, He was imprisoned for that for the rest of his life. After he died, Galileo was entombed in a very um, small, obscure room at the end of a hallway at the Basilica of Santa Croce in Tuscany. But in 1737, his remains were dug up in a ceremony during which three of his fingers from his right hand, a tooth and vertebrae were removed. That doesn't sound like a very good ceremony to me, at least not for Galileo. He was then reburied in a more prominent marble tomb, but missing all of those pieces of his body. This was at the chapel of the Basilica. Seems like a fair trade. Like, you get a hotel upgrade, but... They steal your luggage. Yeah, yes. Well, Galileo's middle finger is displayed in an egg-shaped glass container uh, in the Galileo Museum in Florence. So, centuries after his death, he's still giving people the finger. Oh, wow. So, (laughs) there is that. So this is a list of weird exhibits that you can find at museums around the world. Are are they mostly body parts? Not all, most. Okay. But but not all. Okay. Lazaro Spallanzani, uh, he died in 1799. He was a biologist and a physiologist. He made uh, some pretty important contributions in the study of uh, bodily functions, animal reproduction. His research of biogenesis helped disprove the concept of spontaneous generation, which is the belief that living organisms developed from non-living matter. And uh, he paved the way for Louis Pasteur's research. When he died (laughs) from bladder cancer in uh, 1799 in Pavia, Italy, his bladder was removed by his colleagues so it could be studied. And it was publicly displayed in the museum in Pavia. In fact, it's the same museum as Scarpa's head, so we definitely have to go now. So we can see the uh, the bladder and the head. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine a bladder would look really good after this length of time. A little closer to home, Thomas Alva Edison. He died in 1931, of course, the most prolific inventor in American history by far. Famous for his inventions, the phonograph, motion picture camera, the electric light bulb. He set up a laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey in 1876. He named it the Invention Factory. I love that. It's so simple and goofy. See this place? This is where we do all of our work. It's incredible amount of uh, brain power and <laughs> innovation. It's incredible. It's the Invention Factory. He was good friends with Henry Ford. Henry Ford kind of worshipped Edison, followed his career, worked with him as a chief engineer. Uh, Edison encouraged Ford's work on the gas-powered automobile. In fact, they both bought homes in Fort Myers, Florida, side by side. And they're both both those homes are still part of the uh, Edison Museum in Fort Myers. And that's a cool place to go to. In one of the rooms of his house, they have all the chairs lined around the wall because that's where he usually kept them because he would hold square dances there. (laughs) He would hold an Edison hoedown. And while you're in Fort Myers, also check out a Red Sox spring training game. As the story goes, Ford asked Thomas Edison's son Charles 
when Edison was dying to sit by the inventor's bedside. I can't. The chairs are pressed up against the walls. And hold test tubes next to his father's mouth to catch the final breath of Thomas Edison so that he could reanimate Edison at a later time. There were eight test tubes. One of the test tubes turned up in 1951 when uh, the Henry Ford Museum received a, a lot of 100 items after Henry Ford's wife, Clara, passed away. The museum staff found the letter from Charles Edison to a columnist that said that uh, the test tube just happened to be in the room where Edison died and uh, that it was given to Henry Ford as a memento of Edison's life. So that test tube is now on display at the Henry Ford Museum, supposedly with the last breath of Thomas Edison inside. You did an episode early on in the Box of Oddities about the Icelandic Penis Museum. That's correct, yes. They have a lot of interesting uh, museums, apparently, in Iceland. The Iceland Museum of Sorcery, visitors can view a pair of necro pants made out of the skin of a dead man. Yeah. The pants were made as a talisman to magically summon more money, but could only be fashioned after a dying man consented to be made into a pair of pants. Who would do that? Um, who would consent to your body being made into pants? Who would want to be made into a pair of pants? Oh, I wouldn't mind being made into pants. Really? No. Why? Because I don't care. I'm dead. I literally do not care. Anyway, moving along. Now, the Mutter Museum. We love the Mutter. <sighs> but one of the stranger things there, and believe me, this is not the strangest. There are plenty of strange and interesting and morbid things at yeah, the yeah. Motor Museum. But and I and I seem to remember seeing this. It's a, a necklace made out of genital warts. Yeah, I remember that. It's in a jar. Yeah. Just the thing to brighten up that little black dress. Well, when I was a young person, I used to make necklaces out of Barbie heads. And oh my God. so uh, <laughs> uh this one uh maybe a little more sticky than my <laughs> necklace would have been. Uh, still calls to me. Barbie doll heads? Yeah. Did I ever tell the story about Richard Simmons? Jab their eyeballs out and then... Really? Well, you're weird. Uh, Richard Simmons and Barbie doll heads? Yeah. Did I ever tell that story? I don't know. I feel like yes. Okay. Because it's one of your stories. Yeah. But I don't know if I've told it on the... If I did, it was a long time ago. I interviewed Richard Simmons once and he told a story about how everybody in his neighborhood thought he was weird because he really liked the sound that the Barbie doll heads made when you pulled them off the doll. And so he would go around the neighborhood and pull the heads off of all the kids' Barbie dolls. And uh, nobody knew what was going on. These headless Barbies would just show up in his neighborhood until his father one day opened a dresser drawer in Richard uh, Simmons's bedroom and it was full of Barbie doll heads. So it's. I think it's interesting that he decided to keep the heads. He didn't just remove the head from the body and then run off. It was. I'm taking this. Yeah, it's with a. Me. It's a souvenir. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Get your stripy tank top out of here. Or was it stripy shorts? I don't recall. At Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin, there is a really interesting uh, exhibit. It's the se- a severed head of Peter Curtin. I think I mentioned him briefly in an earlier episode. He was a 1930s German serial killer. He was called the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Yes. He was also called the King of Sexual Perverts. He killed indiscriminately, and he even engaged in, uh, in cannibalism. He was arrested five different times before he was finally caught and put on trial. Uh, he confessed to committing uh, up to 68 
crimes, including 10 murders, 31 attempted murders. He reportedly drank the blood of his victims, and one time he drank so much of the blood he vomited. I bet that's upsetting, because you always want to be aware and cognizant. Of how much you drink? Well, no, if there's blood in your vomit. Oh, yeah. Um, How do you tell? Right? Mm. Like, if you burst capillaries in that throat, you're not going to know because of all the blood. He was sentenced to the guillotine after which his head was bisected. It was cut right down the middle from nose to the back of the head. All right, so an eyeball on either side. Right. Got it. And then it was mummified. And the head today is at uh, Ripley's, believe it or not, in Wisconsin. How many Ripley's museums are there? Do you know? I don't know, but Wisconsin seems like a strange place for a Ripley's, doesn't it? I mean, I get San Francisco on the beach, or Orlando, some place where there's a lot of attractions. Have you ever been to Wisconsin? No, I would love to go sometime. All right, then. You don't know what kind of weird shit they've got. Have you ever been? No. Okay. But I love those cheese curds. Harvard owns a book that is bound with human skin. Yeah. Yeah. One of its curators announced that uh, tests on the book, The Destinies of Soul, which was published sometime in the 1880s, they have confirmed with 99.9% confidence that uh, the, the book is indeed bound in human skin. It was sitting in the uh, Houghton Library since the 1930s, and there was a note inside that said, uh, it was in French, and translated, it said, this book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. And up until recently, it was that was all they were going on. They hadn't done any tests. The rumor was, yes, it's human skin, but these tests that were done just a couple of years ago does confirm it's human skin. So it was called the Destinies of the Soul? Yeah. If the book was had been called Destinies of the Skin, you would open it up and it just said, this book. In French. By looking at it, you can see the pores in the skin. And it's once you know it's human, you go, yeah, okay, I get that. <laughs> also on the note, it said, a book about the human soul deserves to have a human covering. Quote, I had kept this piece of human skin taken from the back of a woman. It is interesting to see the different aspects that change this skin according to the method of preparation to which it is subjected. I think it's interesting that it says taken from a woman, but not like how it was taken. It it came from a female mental patient whose body went unclaimed after dying from a stroke. I wonder if they've done any DNA testing on it. To oh, see if there's like anybody. a Cheddar Man kind of situation. Yeah, maybe there's a relative that would like the book back. I don't know that that's the case. Or the back book, if you so prefer. And in June of 2017, a piece of a saint's brain was recently stolen from the Basilica of St. John Bosco. Oh, no. In Italy. But uh, they found it. They found it in a stew pot at a, at a person's house. They were able, through fingerprints and shoe prints left behind at the scene of the crime, find a 42-year-old suspect with a history of priors living in a town north of the museum. They raided his apartment and found the uh, holy gray matter relic in a copper kettle on the stove. But it was still in the jars and stuff. He wasn't cooking it. He was just Got just, it. just hiding it. That's a good hiding spot, I would think. On the kettle sto- on the stove. Yeah, yeah. Kind of in plain sight. Sure. I got most of my information from Atlas Obscura, CNN, and National Geographic. 
So this just feeds my passion to go to museums even more. I want to go to museums all the time. Mm. Uh, maybe it's also because we haven't been able to go anywhere. Yeah, we for can't months. go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, I've compiled a list. I'm actually putting it in spreadsheet form, and uh, you will comply. <laughs> Any hoozle. Moving along, our virtual live from our semi-finished basement show, which <laughs> will be on. Uh, I guess we're going to stream it online. Will be available sometime this week. We're 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 thinking of doing it sometime this week. We'll let you know in plenty of time on social media. Of course, yes, we will absolutely keep you updated. Uh, it is happening soon, so just uh, be on the lookouts on the socials. We're going to try to recreate that live show feel. We're going to have, you know, we're going to set it up the way that we the stage is all set up uh, when we do a live show. Um, so we're going to have an audience. Well, the pugs and uh, Amber's going to be here, our road manager. She's going to for emotional support. And the guinea pigs. It's right. an audience. Right. I don't know why you have to argue with me about everything. Because you're wrong often. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the audience will be you guys. Hopefully you'll join us for it. We'll, we'll keep you posted and uh, we will see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.